Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. In fact, that the history of culture and art, uh, of modernism, really is connected to uh, nicotine consumption. I think uh, if you think about uh, Freud to uh, Bob Dylan to Frank Zappa, they were all heavy smokers and uh, they use this. It's like uh, amphetamines. It pushes you to, uh, into creativity and the sort of the heightened attention that comes from uh, nicotine consumption is turned into art. So I, I think it's no surprise that modernism sort of arose uh, along with tobacco products becoming a consumer uh, product in, in Europe, along with uh, coffee. Is there a relationship between smoking and creativity? What's a smoker's personality? And do some people smoke to think? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to meet with two extraordinary writers, one an American the other a German, novelists of tremendous intensity, imagination and depth. Stacey Pebbles, Dara Downey and David Deacon talk America's great poetic visionary, Cormac McCarthy. It takes that setting and some of those character types and then layers on theology and philosophy and language and history and all of this other stuff. We know that he was interested, for instance, in uh, the films of Peckinpah, you know, stuff like The Wild Bunch, which is also hyperbolically violent. Um, but I still think that Blood Meridian is doing things a bit differently while still being influenced. And writer and translator Gregor Hens unpacks the psychology of smoking, as teased out in his superb long essay, Nicotine. This is a show about masculinity and justice, compulsion and desire, neuroplasticity, human evil, and a dystopian tale of a journey of a father and his son. People were always getting ready for tomorrow. I didn't believe in that. Tomorrow wasn't getting ready for them. It didn't even know they were there. The chilling words of Cormac McCarthy from his 2006 novel, The Road. Cormac McCarthy is one of America's greatest living novelists. Born in Providence, Rhode Island in 1933, he has written 10 novels, two plays, three screenplays and numerous short stories. Now Cormac is known for his sparse use of punctuation, which suffice to say has divided readers and critics alike. Cormac says he prefers simple declarative sentences. Cormac's books include The Orchard Keeper, Child of God, Sutri, Blood Meridian, All the Pretty Horses, No Country for Old Men and The Road. Cormac's 11th book, The Passenger, is due out shortly. Well, tonight in Talking Books, I'm joined by three Cormac McCarthy enthusiasts and scholars. Dr. Stacey Pebbles is Assistant Professor of English and the Director of Film Studies at Centre College in Danville, Kentucky. Stacey is the author of Welcome to the Suck, narrating the American soldier's experience in Iraq. And she's the Vice President of the Cormac McCarthy Society. Stacey has published widely on the writings of Cormac McCarthy and is also the editor of the Cormac McCarthy Journal. Dr. Dara Downey lectures in the School of English at Trinity College Dublin and is an expert in American Gothic fiction from the 1850s to 2000. 
Dara is also the book review editor of the Irish Journal of Gothic and Horror Studies. David Deacon is a PhD student at University College Dublin with a particular interest in postmodern American literature, nihilism, postmodern philosophy and dystopian American environments. David is currently completing a PhD on the writings of Cormac McCarthy, Don DeLillo and Paul Auster. Stacey began by describing Cormac McCarthy's voice. Well, I think his voice takes in a lot of different aspects. I mean, I was thinking about his books, and the plots are always very compelling, the characters are always very compelling, but you're right that the language is what stops you, I think. The plot might make you want to keep turning the pages, but then you'll hit a sentence that is just so musical and imagistic or just plain strange that it slows you down or maybe just stops you cold. Uh, his vocabulary is so extensive. And I think a lot of times what he's writing about tends to be so extreme, you know, whether it's social or whether it's, you know, it's characters in a city or maybe it's, a, you know, an isolated character in the middle of nowhere. But, you know, usually the, the stories have, a, as you said, a lot to do with violence. And so the combination, really, I think, of that compelling subject matter and sometimes extreme subject matter with really, you know, very unique usage of language is, uh, for me, that was what that was what brought me to his work. And Stacey, some people or some readers get put off by his unique punctuation. It's certainly original. <laughs> well, I'm just wondering right. if I was to describe Cormac McCarthy, I think he's a very poetic voice in parts. Do you think that's just me talking them off? <laughs> no, I think that's right. I think that's most evident in some of his shorter novels. I mean, if you read Child of God or even The Road, it just on the page, it looks like a series of prose poems. And he said that he doesn't like to overuse punctuation because he thinks it mucks up the page. So just like a poet is really aware of how the language looks you know, visually on the page, I think McCarthy is a writer who's also very aware of that not only in the construction of the sentences and of the meaning, but, but how you encounter it visually. And so his punctuation, I think, has a lot to do with that. David, do you think a novel can have too much violence? Do you think that we should draw the line with some violence in how some books are written? And certainly when we read Cormac McCarthy, there is a tremendous amount of violence, savagery in some of his books. I'm thinking of Blood Meridian. Yes, definitely. Well, I mean, in the case of Blood Meridian, it is historical violence in the sense that um, I think Blood Meridian is most successfully read as a critique of manifest destiny. So the idea of this kind of heroic Americanism settling in the West and so on and so forth. And in that regard, I think it it might be almost a parody. Um, So violence is almost a tool to critique this um, masculinity that is so pervasive. So rather than being um, a case of valorization of violence, I think it also can be displayed by the writer in a manner in which critiques it. And it's very productive in that regard, I think. Do you think it's always necessary, though, to tell a story? I think it depends on the story. I think certainly the way in which McCarthy represents America, or rather presents America in the 20th century and in the 19th Mm -hmm. century in that case, yes, I think it may well be justified. It very much depends on the story, and I think McCarthy pitches it just right in that regard. And Dara, if you were to select some of Cormac McCarthy's reads, the characters are very violent, they're very cold... They're almost attached. I think in many ways, sort of to come back 
to what David was saying is that these are actually books that are about violence. Mm. And this is part of why there is so much in there that, you know, on the one hand, he's kind of critiquing a world system and American kind of government that is creating an awful lot of violence. And Mm. I think because of that, you wind up with these characters who seem to have almost kind of nothing going on in them except the actions that they do. And I think you really see this when you read No Country for Old Men, Mm. that you start to realise that you have no idea what these people look like or how Mm. they feel about things, that it is literally just action. And then every now and then you get to see kind of one character from another character's point of view and you sort of go, oh, right, gosh, that's what Mm. he's like. And I think maybe kind of in lots of ways what McCarthy is doing here is he's saying, well, why does the novel have to give us rounded characters? Mm. You know, why do we need to be kind of lulled into the illusion of seeing real live people who develop in kind of realistic ways or whatever that he's kind of saying this is life. Life is chaos. But do you think he brings a depth of understanding to violence or certainly stretches the reader's ideas on violence. I think very much, yeah. And I think one of the things that he's kind of very aware of is the fact that violence is something that is kind of, it's almost viral. It escalates, that violence creates more violence. And I think you see this very much in something like Blood Meridian, where it kind of, it starts off as violence that seems to have a purpose, even Mm -hmm. if it's not a purpose that we as 21st century readers can agree with. But then it just becomes violence for its own sake. And I think kind of his his really kind of quite in-depth awareness of that in relation to these characters who just seem to be kind of swept along on a great tide of blood. It is something that's really kind of quite complex and quite interesting, I think. Stacey, how he writes some of his more violent novels, do you think he has done it differently to other writers? Do you think he has taken a different approach in any way or has done it better in some way? Well, and I was just thinking, I think he does it differently in different novels also, because certainly in Blood Meridian or No No Country for Old Men, you don't get a lot of interior landscape with some of the characters. Sheriff Bell, you do in No Country. You have all of these monologues where he's telling you exactly what he thinks about everything. But but in other novels like Sutri and the Border Trilogy, the three novels of the Border Trilogy, you do get these incredibly detailed interior landscapes, psychological landscapes of characters who are encountering not the not the extremity of violence of Blood Meridian, but it certainly it certainly experiences that are extreme in their own ways and that affect these characters quite a bit. Um, I personally find Blood Meridian and the Border Trilogy really fascinating because they're westerns, mm-hmm. uh, because they're written in this genre that is so quintessentially American, has you know been with us for such a long time, and has been so done. I mean, you know, it's both in literature and film and dime novels, right? I mean, music, practically every conceivable artistic form, you know, we have this very established tradition. And I would, I still make the case, I think, that McCarthy is doing this differently than just about anything else, because something like Blood Meridian, you know, takes that setting and some of those character types and then layers on theology and philosophy and language and history and all of this other stuff. We know that he was interested, for instance, in uh, the films of Peckinpah, you know, stuff like The Wild Bunch, which is also hyperbolically violent. Um, but I still think that Blood Meridian is doing things a bit differently while still being influenced, you know, by those films. But certainly if you read some classic westerns like Shane, uh, the original novel, or The Virginian, um, I mean, violence is so contained to certain moments, you know, the showdown, right, being a kind of classic trope. And with Blood Meridian and even the Border Tril- Trilogy, as David and Dara have both said, it kind of explodes beyond that because that's his examination of the myth, I think. And it's a way of exploding the myth as well. And Blood Meridian is, I reread it there over the week, and it's heavy duty, to put it mildly. It's visceral. You sweat while you're reading it. It's it's <laughs> unbelievably full on, but it's magnificent, isn't it? 
Yeah, that's my vote for his masterwork. I mean, I well, being who I am, I'll say that it's the best book ever written. <laughs> I put it up against anything. But I just think, yeah, I mean, you can take, um, certainly of American literature, I think you can take some of our, our other masterworks, and Blood Meridian holds its own for all those reasons, because it is, I mean, you can study it probably for a lifetime and then still find something new um, that's just so loaded with, with research, with illusion, and then just with poetic beauty with these sentences that you know, you've never read a sentence like that before. So I think it, it's it's endlessly rich in that in that respect. Do you think we can compare him to Faulkner, David? Yes, quite definitely. Um, he certainly kind of uses uh, Faulkner's register quite readily uh, throughout, particularly the Border Trilogy and mm. Blood Meridian, quite specifically. Something I think that he takes quite directly from Faulkner is the idea of some kind of heresy because Faulkner particularly has a huge amount of characters who like to steal altars from preachers and so on and so forth. Um, And I think McCarthy finds that idea very attractive. Uh, He does have these, uh, many of these kind of fallen preacher characters like the ex-priest Tobin in Love Meridian, for example, um, and that kind of preacherly sermonic rhetoric that Faulkner was such a master of. And there is something of that that McCarthy finds extraordinarily um, attractive as a writer. I know that you're particularly drawn to themes of justice in his writing. Can you tease that out with me? Because some people would say there is absolutely no justice in a Cormac McCarthy novel. What would you say to that? I would say that that very question of whether there is justice or not, um, it's not fair to kind of make a generalisation or a monumental point about a a writer as complex as McCarthy. Um, But the idea of whether there be justice or not and from what source it comes from, that is the very question that Mm. animates pretty much all of his prose writing, I think. Do you think he's a philosophical writer then? Yes, unquestionably I do. We do know that he has uh, immense interests in Plato um, and in Augustine, for example. So the idea that, uh, so if you want to read justice as a a case of good and evil, where does evil come from? Augustine had this idea that uh, evil is a purely human creation. Um, And I think McCarthy ponders that quite specifically in Blood Meridian through, for example, Judge Holden. Dara, should we be worried about the fact that there doesn't seem to be very well-developed female characters? I know that he said at one stage that he doesn't understand women. Cormac McCarthy's had a number of marriages and he seems happy now at this stage in his late, late in life. But should that be something to worry about? I think it's certainly an issue and certainly kind of I would have been reading this at the same time as say someone like Annie Prue uh, who wrote um, Brokeback Mountain or, or Willa Cather who would have been writing kind of very similar things in the time period um, kind of you know kind of 100 years beforehand and it does really make you realise just how much McCarthy's women exist as sort of background for male mm. action that whether they're you know whores or whether they're these kind of innocent victim types or whether they're like Loretta in No Country for Old Men kind of there to save men they are very much kind of the backdrop against which male action takes place and you know I can understand that to a certain extent I mean I I think he's very much kind of drawing on a 19th century idea Mm. that the West needed women this was kind of a big Mm. thing throughout the 19th century that they wanted to get women out there to tame the place and to tame men and to stop all the drinking and the gambling and the whoring and so I think he's definitely kind of building on that but much like Stephen King who's been sort of popping into my head when you've been talking I, I think he's someone who was really fascinated by the idea of women but just keeps putting them in nighties and then getting them killed. <laughs> <laughs> Stacey, do you, do you have an opinion on that? No, I think 
think that's right. I think it's always worth talking about. I mean, some of the best, some really strong scholarship, you know, in, in McCarthy's studies has been about exactly this problem. You know, and Oprah Winfrey asked him when he agreed to an interview with her, you know, why don't you write, why don't you write more, more women? And he said, well, yeah, I don't claim to understand them. I find that kind of bracingly honest, to be frank about it. I mean, it's not that, they, and it's not that there aren't interesting female characters. It's just that I think, as you guys have said, they are secondary, um, with the exception of somebody like Rinthe and Outer Dark and it's said that one of the major characters in his upcoming work, The Passenger, is, is a woman. Of course, we have to wait to see what that means. I mean, I, I guess when people talk to me about it, I say, well, the women are secondary, but they still matter. Um, when Alejandra leaves John Grady in All the Pretty Horses, she does that for her own reasons, not just to torture him. I mean, she's not a, you know, just a succubus kind of person. But she, you know, she has her own strength and her own priorities. And part of John Grady's tragedy is that he can't understand that. And so that speaks to his character, too, as much as it does hers. I think the mother and the road is the same. You know, we have the father and the son that the story is focused on, but her choice in these post-apocalyptic circumstances was significant and it mattered. And the father even thinks that she was right about it. It's a philosophical position and a course of action that carries a lot of weight in the story. So, so that's how I tend to talk about it. I mean, I, I don't think he pretends to be a woman's writer by any means, uh, but that doesn't mean that his character, his female characters are completely dismissible. And it doesn't preclude a female readership or a female audience because reading The Road, it's an extraordinary moving novel. It may be grotesquely violent in parts and you've got cannibalism and the survivalist instinct and what people are willing to do or not. But it is so touching. It's devastatingly emotionally touching, isn't it? Right. And I think that I think Oprah's interest in it, frankly, I mean, Oprah, as a champion of women's literature and, you know, the cause of women, right, um, women of color, all of that. I mean, she responded to it in exa- on exactly those terms and recommended it to her viewers and readers in those same terms. And I think, yeah, I think that's entirely possible. Have you met Cormac on any occasion? I met him years ago. I think it was in 2000. His play is not very well known, uh, called The Stonemason, which has never been fully produced, but it was produced in abbreviated fashion at an art center in Clear Lake, Texas. And he, I think he knew the people that were making that happen, and so he attended. And I was living in Texas at the time, and so I, I went over. And I, you know, I would have been fine not to impose myself upon him, but I was with a friend who, who wanted to say hello, but was a little nervous about doing it on our own. So we approached him together and I introduced myself and I said, you know, Mr. McCarthy, your work is what led me to be an English major, you know, to, to devote myself to the study of literature. And his response was, oh no, I've ruined your life. <laughs> but it, it's funny, despite the bleak narratives and the bloodbaths and all the devastation, he strikes me as an incredibly warm man. Am I right in saying oh, that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Now, Dara, you're an expert on gothic fiction. Do you think he will be read in 50 years time or do you think somebody else will surpass him? Well, that's a very good question. And it's it's a tricky one because when he did The Road, um, much like when Margaret Atwood started to kind of slide into science fiction, there was a lot of resistance among the kind of people who would consider themselves to be science fiction or, or gothic kind of fans because he was seen as sort of stomping in on their territory and making use of kind of tropes like like the apocalypse, um, you know, that tend to sort of go together with zombies and that kind of thing. Um, he was seen as kind of almost exploiting them and then creating these books that are put in kind of serious fiction 
shelves, literally, in a way that was seen as kind of cynical, that it was allowing him to tap in both to the the science fiction audience and into the more serious readers. And I think that that certainly it, it created a lot of hostility among a large number of readers for a very long time. But I think, I mean, the very fact that The Road was turned into a film lifted it as a text out of his kind of reputation as a writer, if you know what I mean, that it, it's turned it into a thing in and of itself and it's become part of this wider genre of yeah. kind of end of the world films. And so I would like to think that people will still be reading him and that perhaps The Road will then lead people into, you know, the rest of his his of. And I think mm. that when you do read his other books, you realise that kind of The Road is almost like slicing off the very top layer of the kind of ideas and tropes that he's been dealing with anyway, just kind of bringing them to this very explicit level of, well, everything is declining, everything is dying, we're living in this yeah. terrible world where nothing grows and nobody gets to live beyond, you know, 25. But if you were to compare him to other writers, other novelists, in terms of his use of genre, is he intensely original or not? Or am I just a fan, so I think he is? Well, I think... He kind of he is and he isn't in some ways. And I think kind of part of the thing with genre fiction is that it is actually about the kind of the pleasure of repetition, recognising certain tropes or whatever. And to, to kind of to come briefly back to the woman question, one thing that I just I'm, I am waiting for a last man narrative where the last man doesn't sit around thinking about women's breasts. <laughs> just just one. I just want one. And it hasn't happened yet. Even Margaret Atwood in, Ar- in Argus and Crake, it, it just it happens. And so I think that kind of really the purpose of writing something like that is actually to not be original, but to tap into these kind of wider narratives and wider ideas that already exist in order to make people kind of think about these kind of very familiar ways of looking at the world, but maybe in a slightly different way. And I think maybe kind of what's what's quite sort of surprising about The Road is the way that it ends, not just with the little boy being kind of rescued, possibly rescued, maybe eaten by, you know, the people who take him in, but then you get this kind of strange paragraph about fish mm-hmm. at the very end that leaves you in, I think, a very different place. So it, it means that you've been kind of taken through this, like I say, a, a relatively familiar apocalyptic thing that we get, say, from something like David Brin's The Postman. And then it, it dumps you out mm. into something else at, mm. at the end, back into a McCarthy novel. Stacey, what would you say to to readers who find that Cormac McCarthy's novels, they're just unrelenting, that the sense of foreboding deepens and intensifies and eventually you've just had it because you just can't put your body through it. What would you say to that? I think that sense is usually tempered by the beauty of the language. I think that if he was not as talented in that respect, then that would be the case, that they would be unreadable. I won't name names, but I can think of authors that are less impressive to me at the level of language, but they still deal with very violent subject matter. And certainly the, like the horror genre generally is one that I'm not a huge fan of, but it's, it's because you know, he's not just doing that. He's also putting language together in a way that is just sublimely beautiful. And so the tension between those two things, that that in itself creates something, something else entirely. So that, I think, that's the saving grace, but it's also what makes it so interesting because of that contrast. Now, have you read all his early stuff? Yep, I've read, um, I've even read some unpublished screenplays that are, that are in his archives. How has he changed or has he changed over the 50 years or nearly 50 years? Well, it's an interesting, it's an interesting arc because his first novels are shorter in fact, novels number two and three, Outer Dark and Child of God, are almost like a series of vignettes in the way that they're written. But then novels four and five, Sutri and Blood Meridian, are these big, you know, doorstop kind of novels with all kinds of stuff going on. They're very dense. 
and then the Border Trilogy is also, you know, that, that if you think of it as a single work, it's also, you know, quite massive. I think the fact that he's right, that, that he starts writing screenplays in the 80s um, leads him to be more interested in slightly more minimal works, a little bit returning to that later in his career, like No Country for Old Men and like The Road. I mean, they're not, you know, extreme minimalism. They're not, you know, really, really short, but they're still a lot different from um, the big, big novels um, kind of from the middle of his career. So I think he's, I think what what struck me um, in looking at his archive and looking at the different kinds of things he's written is that even though we know him, I think he's most known for his novels. He's tried his, his hand at playwriting. He's tried his hand at screenwriting. He's been very open to different kinds of writing throughout his career. And I think that's, you know, I think that's pretty interesting, especially for somebody, you know, who kind of tends to be known as like a traditional American novelist, but really he's been engaged with these other these other forms um, almost from the beginning of his career. David, what are the books that stand out for you? I know that you're a fan of his early stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, Satri stands out quite specifically to me, but the one just before that, Child of God, also Stacey briefly mentioned it, but Child of God is an, an immensely fascinating book, partially because it has a, a rather odd protagonist. Uh, he's a necrophile serial killer which is something rather unusual and quite shocking to get your head around in the first chapter or two. But I think one thing, if we're talking about the advancement uh, of the different uh, tropes that exist as his uh, career went on, he seems to be particularly attracted to this idea of the wanderer and the transgressor and the criminal early in his uh, career, not unlike Beckett. Uh, That is a kind of a rather decent uh, line that you could draw between them. That seems to advance to something far more heroic in the late, kind of we'll say in the Border Trilogy from the 90s onwards, there seems to be something far more uh, moralistic that's going on. It's a, it's a kind of a changeover from the criminal to the hero, for example. But Satri then is uh, perhaps more interesting because it seems to be his most autobiographical novel. He speaks about the Knoxville of his childhood, for example, um, which was being industrialised and gentrified uh, in a way in which that he didn't seem particularly happy Mm. with and his character, the main character that he seems to identify with, earns his living by fishing in the local river, for example, and he is run away from his beautiful middle-class existence and thrown away his university education. Uh, much like McCarthy himself yeah. did. So it's a kind of a way into the personal life of McCarthy, if you can put it like that, which is something quite attractive, really. Cheeky question, but does he have a worst book? Or do you think it's even fair to ask you that, considering you're doing your PhD in him? I wouldn't say it's his worst book, but I find it most difficult to connect with The Orchard Keeper, which is his first novel, and I'm not yeah. quite sure why that is. And it, the interesting thing is a lot of people have found that book a very difficult read. By the time they got to page 70, you've just said, I've had enough. Sure. Why do you think that is, Stacey? I think um, it may be because... He's so close to Faulkner at that point. I mean, this is just my interpretation, but I mean, he he is eventually working with um, his ed- his first editor, Albert Erskine, was also Faulkner's editor um, later in Faulkner's life. And you know, I think they were both aware of that overshadowing influence, uh, which you know, all, I think all Southern writers since have kind of struggled with. But I think he was trying to be a bit more modernist than he really needed to be, because he backs off of some of the narrative tricks that he tries in The Orchard Keeper, which is part of what you know makes it difficult to connect with, because you just have to figure out well who's thinking here and what's you know who is this person, what's actually going on. His later narratives are still, I mean, complex in all kinds of ways, but I. Think think they're not they're not quite as self-conscious about being narratives if that makes sense I think that's part of it and if we took Blood Meridian out of the loop or um and you pick some of its better books what would be your top three 
well, all the pretty horses, I think, is is pretty brilliant again as a kind of interrogation of the Western in a in a completely different way than Blood Meridian. I think Child of God. I, I would agree with David. I think that's brilliant. Um, I love teaching that novel because it's it's so fascinating to see what the students have to say about it. And then I think The Crossing doesn't really get its due as the middle novel of the Border Trilogy, but it is pretty phenomenal in a lot of the same ways that the Border Trilogy is. Dara, if you had to just pick one book, one Cormac McCarthy to go on holiday with, what would it be? Or one to reread? I have to say that I'm agreeing with everyone about Child of God. Um, I only came across it recently and I just I thought it was absolutely devastating. And it, it has that whole kind of short, sharp shock element that means that you you get like this little condensed sort of McCarthy taste explosion thing um, just you know in kind of slightly over 100 pages and I think it's he fills you with these kind of you know these images that really stick in your mind I think that when when the protagonist finally goes to that cave and you see just so briefly that it's full of dead bodies that he's been collecting and you sort of just go whoa I have no idea what to do with that and it moves Mm. on so quickly that you can't actually kind of you know you don't actually know what to do with it you can't synthesize it in your head and so I think it it seems so short, but I think it, it very much bears rereading. But it as well. stretches your imagination in different ways. It really does, yeah. And and I think as well, kind of coming back to the whole Western thing, I'm slightly obsessed by books that talk about um like canyons and things uh, in the, the sort of the far southwest and it shows up everywhere. Um yeah. Zane Gray's writer is on the Purple Sage, is slightly obsessed by canyons. And it's just that particular book, it, it dumps you into the landscape in, in such an incredibly kind of visceral way that you realise, I think this is kind of a theme throughout his work, mm. just how much humanity is kind of barely clinging on to life in these texts, yeah. just how much we're kind of at the mercy of the landscape. Now, Stacy, The Passenger is due out pretty shortly. I don't think anyone knows exactly when, but what do you think we should look forward to? Well, uh, we know it's a work that he has been writing for a long time, at least 10 years. So I think it's going to be a big book. Um, there was a rumor that it might even be in two volumes. I have, I can't substantiate that at all. But I think it's going to be another big one. You know, his his most recent has been relatively, you know, more minimalist, as I said, things like The Road, you know, the play The Sunset Limited, No Country for Old Men. Uh, but I think The Passenger will be another heavily researched and big, big novel. Um, and that's, you know, there's been other rumors about its content you know, who knows if those are, you know, what's true about that. But I, I do think it's one that will be like perhaps Sutrian Blood Meridian, another another long project with a lot of material. David, are you looking forward to it? Uh, yes, quite certainly. Uh, for no other reason than he's been set up in the Santa Fe Institute for about 15 years at this stage. Um, the Road was written shortly after he got there. Uh, so I would see no reason why this idea perhaps kind of, I know, for example, that he's become particularly interested in quantum theory and quantum physics and very dense scientific ideas. I think he will allow these to animate his work. I would be surprised if he didn't. And I, I would wager that that would be the major difference. And Dara, last question to you. For those people who think they're not up to a Cormac McCarthy book, and when I say they're not up for it, they just can't take all the bloodletting. How would you encourage them? Well, actually, I think, to be honest with you, I think people have kind of touched on this slightly. The dialogue is screamingly funny. And I think it's like it's actually really, really worth just bearing through some of the more heavily philosophical passages just to get to the bits where people are literally just talking to one another and they're constantly correcting one another and they're, you know, they're kind of joking and playing with language. And I think in those moments, you you get that kind of sense of humanity that maybe might feel like it's kind of being shunted out of some of the larger passages and I think just kind of yeah bear with it and realize that it's funny talking books 
on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Now, if there's a book or writer that you'd like me to cover on the show, well, why don't you drop me a line at talkingbooks at newstalk.com. It's always lovely hearing from you and getting your take on what inspires. OK, let's keep with the theme of heavy-duty reading. In Nicotine, German writer, translator and teacher Gregor Haynes writes, Each one of us has an addiction. You're free to appropriate an alternative pattern of behaviour or reject it. Smoking is a compulsive behaviour. He who conquers his urges gains his freedom. I failed often enough to know that I'm right at the beginning. I've decided at this time I'll write my way out of addiction. My name is Gregor Hens. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a writer and translator currently living in Berlin. I've written a few books and uh, translated a few more, uh, among others uh, by Leonard Cohen, Marlon Brando, uh, and Will Self, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm all about literature, about language, words, all that great stuff. Gregor, I'm going to start off with a big wide open question. Do you think it's fair to say that every behaviour has a price? Yes, I think so. <laughs> every behaviour has an upside and a downside. And uh, my book, uh, Nicotine, uh, I think uh, is mostly about the upsides of, uh, of smoking. But yeah, uh, actions have consequences. Now, Gregor, you start the book on a very intriguing note and you quote Moshe Feldenkris, who writes, Negating an act is somehow similar to changing the direction of a moving body. A break at zero velocity is necessary in between switching from one to the other. Can you talk me through that? Well, yes, uh, Moshe Feldenkrais was was a very interesting uh, character. He was uh, uh, he was so many things. He uh, spent uh, spent much time in uh, in Israel. Uh, was part of a group that uh, built up the Israeli defense forces, and he was a judo uh, master and a physicist. And uh, what I want to uh, do with this motto of of the book is uh, I want to describe that when you change direction in an action, when, if you start, uh, start uh, moving in the opposite direction, you have to take some time to meditate on it. Uh, there's a sort of a zero moment uh, between one behavior and the other behavior, uh, and it's, it's physics. Uh, it has to stop first uh, the, before, before the pendulum can move back. And uh, this is exactly the place of my book, uh, I, I, I write about a moment, or I write in a moment, uh, where I decide to quit smoking and I move in the opposite direction. I'm, I don't mean this in a sort of a moralistic sense. I'm not saying I, I'm, I'm, I'm not an anti-smoker. Uh, I, I still uh, like and enjoy the, the idea of that experience. But I think uh, this is a moment of meditating and learning about what I was doing, and I talk myself through it. And Feldenkrais was a great teacher, and he's, he's, he's written many books where he discusses this in terms of the body and the physical aspect of the body. And uh, I think it, it also can be sort of transferred into the mental realm. Now, you write, Gregor, that I've smoked well over 100,000 cigarettes in my life, and each one of those cigarettes meant something to me. I once paid $13 for a pack at a New York airport. And you write, I smoked because I was hungry. I smoked because I was sad. I smoked because I was depressed. Every cigarette served a purpose. Yes. uh, Actually, uh, when I I wrote this, I thought 100,000 cigarettes, that sounds 
sounds like a lot, but uh, I've since calculated that it must be more like uh, half a million cigarettes. And I do think that each one of these cigarettes uh, meant something to me. I think it's the nature of addiction. If addiction sort of takes over your life and what you do is, if you are at all uh, sort of self-aware, is that you give meaning uh, to, to these hundreds and thousands of, of little acts of satisfaction. And uh, yes, I, I, I did have all of these motivations uh, for smoking, and it, it becomes part of your life. You have some sort of emotion or reaction, or you meet someone, or you're lonely or sad, and first thing you do is you pick up a cigarette and smoke, and that, that act is, is always imbued with some sort of meaning. Why do some people bypass addictions like smoking or gambling or drinking, and then others are, are more pro, 